uh, you know, rocks and bottles being thrown at at the firefighters and the rigs. Uh, people were pulling couches in to try to trap us in and things like that. Welcome to the Chief Exchange, where we talk about the captivating stories from fire and police chiefs across the United States, how to become a fearless leader, the skills needed to navigate challenging situations in work, life, and everything in between. All right, so today on the Chief Exchange podcast, we have our very first guest, uh, Chief Brian Tyner from Minneapolis. He's been in the fire service for 29, almost going on 30 years here, and um, you've always lived in Minneapolis, Chief, right? You haven't left and um, kind of rose to the ranks, away from being a firefighter, all the way up to the top chief position. So very happy to have you here, Chief Tyner, and um, looking forward to kind of hearing your story and wisdom you'll be able to have with us this afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course, of course. I didn't know I was your very first guest. That's, <laughs> you are the very first. A... <laughs> and a um, really funny story is I actually met Chief Tyner um, a week before recording the episode when I was trying to find his office when it was freezing outside in uh, Minneapolis. And um, he could just actually just see me running around from door to door outside downtown. <laughs> freezing, um, freezing. And when I got in his office, I was like, oh, you could see the whole time me just running around down there. So... <laughs> I tried to get your attention, but I was... <laughs> there you go. You I, looking I, yeah. My way. yeah, I didn't know where I was looking, just somewhere warm to go inside. It got really cold. But um, I this is a question I always had because a lot of people normally like run away from fires, not not into them. So what kind of made you be like, man, like I'm gonna run into some fires. Like I want to be a firefighter. You know, it probably takes a special kind of fool uh, to want to do that, uh, but but I was that fool. Um, you know, I, I actually, I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a firefighter. It's not something I really had considered as a child or anything like that. A lot of the people that I talked to, you know, they wanted to do it their whole life. That wasn't me. I'd never even really seen it as a viable career growing up. I had tried a lot of different things uh, after, uh, you know, college and doing different things actually i was working at a bus company uh when one of the firefighters who was working there as his part-time job came up to me and told me about the opportunity and asked me if it was something i would be interested in i was probably about 24 years old at the time and that was the first time i even looked at this as a as a viable career path uh, i thought about it a little bit and uh, decided i wanted to pursue it the only problem was uh, the minneapolis fire department only takes applications once every two years and it was still a, a year out before I would even be able to submit my application. So I took that year to kind of prepare myself, uh, mentally and physically, mostly physically mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. took the test and it was still two years. I got hired at the end of that, uh, oh, hiring okay. cycle. So, uh, that was 1995 and, uh, I've never looked back. So the things that really made me want to do it was uh one being able to kind of serve the community i grew up in uh, i was born in st paul but i moved to we moved to north minneapolis when i was uh probably just about one and a half two years old and so being able to serve that community i grew up in uh being able to make a, a good living doing it you know a living that would mm -hmm. allow me to raise a family uh i know i wasn't ever going to get rich doing it but mm -hmm. but make a good living and you know i was a bit of an adrenaline junkie at the time you know i like to like you have do to be. exciting <laughs> things and just kind of fit the bill so so those are the three things that really drew me to to firefighting and it made me want to run in when others run out oh i love that you have to be a different breed to be able to do that and 
you've only been in Minneapolis, right? It's like, how does it kind of feel to be able to be like, you started off as a firefighter like 20, 25 years ago, almost 30. And to see like at the same department, the evolution where it's gone in the past 25, 30 years, how has that progression been? I've enjoyed it. You know, I worked on a couple of departments as a side gig uh, with Golden Valley for a little bit and with uh, Brooklyn Center, two suburbs of Minneapolis. But, uh, you know, it's really nice to be part of the same fire department. It's kind of out of necessity, too. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of career fire departments uh, in the state of Minnesota when I when I joined the fire service. A lot of the surrounding fire departments were paid on call. So generally, when you got a job with the career fire department, uh, you stayed there. And if you did want to move, they didn't really have letter of hiring then. So you would have to basically go through the whole process, start at the bottom and work your way up. So uh, job retention was has really never been a problem with the Minneapolis Fire Department. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming through the whole way, is, it's kind of nice in that I've been able to see the whole journey and be part of the whole journey and see the evolution of the Minneapolis Fire Department over that time and and uh, look at how far we've come. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for the world. Oh, that's amazing to hear, Chief. I I love it, and it's. It seemed like when I was there, I was talking with um, other departments like Edina to uh, Eden Prairie. And it seems like in the area, a lot of parts, these like used to be paid on call or part-time departments are actually starting to transition over into full-time now. Is that just like um, like an increase in population? What do you think is kind of causing like the rise and more need for firefighters right now? I think that is right. I think it's a rise in population and uh, also just being able to provide better service. Um, it's, it's easier to retain firefighters when they're career firefighters and they're getting paid a living wage versus if they're paid on call or volunteers and, you know, they can do anything. Plus with paid or excuse me, with career firefighters, uh, you can, because you have set shifts, you don't necessarily have to live within five minutes of the fire station or 10 minutes of the fire station as you do with the paid on call fire department. So I just think it works out better. It is more expensive, but I think mm-hmm. it's worth it. And, and a lot of, a lot of our surrounding neighbors are, are starting to go that route. No, that's awesome. And definitely kind of feels like it helps with retention too. So you have to have like almost feels like a revolving door. You could actually keep people stay, train them. And you're a great example of that. <laughs> Your department's been able to do that. So I really love that chief. And, um, I know like one of the focus of this podcast is kind of like leadership and public safety positions. And has there been just like one moment? I know it's I know it's a long time frame to look over, but has there just one like where you like you really had to step up as a leader that was memorable for you, whether it was kind of like a good or bad situation that you were just like you were able to rise to the occasion and be able to be there for your men and women or stand up for the department or for yourself? Yeah, I do. And uh it, it's uh <clears throat> probably goes a little bit backwards. But first of all, as far as uh making decisions for the department or doing that things doing things like that. I think if you have a baseline of values that you can go back on, it makes your decision-making a lot easier. Mine is honesty, integrity, and fairness. And so as long as I can go back to that baseline, then it makes the decision-making a lot easier. Uh, but my one moment that I, that I recall is it was when I was the, uh, fire marshal, uh, a lot of people, their career path, it kind of goes up, you know, and maybe it plateaus or it mm-hmm. just kind of goes up. Mine goes up and down like a heartbeat. So uh, <laughs> I was a fire marshal for three years. I was, uh, I'd worked my way up to captain. And then in 2008, I was promoted to fire marshal, which is a deputy chief's level. 
position and the fire marshal is in charge of all of the fire prevention inspections in those uh, areas of the city. Uh, I did that for three years and after three years, I was demoted back to captain and that was uh, a pretty pivotal moment wow. in my career. Uh, at the time, uh, the reason I was given was, uh, you know, financial reasons, but in, in honesty, it was to really clear me out so that they could take the fire prevention bureau and move it over to regulatory services, which is where it still resides today. Uh, it was, it was a big hit to the pride, honestly, and it yeah. was a, a big hit to the pocketbook too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the way I handled it is I went back to, uh, I chose the busiest rig in the city, engine six, mm -hmm. and, uh, just became the best fire captain that I could be. Uh, I did that for about, uh, three years. I was able to take the, uh, battalion chief's promotional exam, promoted to fire chief, uh, and about two and a half, three years after that. Uh, I was promoted to assistant chief, which is actually above deputy chief. And so, uh, and then five years after that to fire chief. And so, uh, what I learned about myself is that I, I am resilient and, yes, yes. uh, where a lot of people, uh, would take their ball and go home. Uh, mm -hmm. another deputy chief was, uh, demoted at about the same time. Uh, that person sued the fire department and got almost half a million dollars. I, I may not have played that wow. exactly right, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, geez, but, but I just, you know, easy. I put my nose to the grindstone and, uh, you know, did my best work and, and, uh, you know, worked on me and, and, uh, here I am. So it worked out in the end, but I think resiliency has taken me, uh, a long way in my career, uh, combined with, uh, interpersonal skills and I think I've mastered the art of delivering bad news as, as the fire marshal I was the uh, deliverer of bad news mm -hmm. times, and uh, sometimes we'd have to vacate buildings uh, because of uh, different problems that the you know the landlord may not have taken care of or that made the building unlivable I always yeah. did that in person uh, because <laughs> I didn't just want to be a name on a sticker or on a paper saying that you had to leave mm -hmm. your home so I, I've always found if I, if you deliver it, the news in a forthright manner, but right. with empathy, uh, generally it was, it was well received. And, and when I could, I tried to always have uh, wraparound services ready, whether that was shelter space or uh, somebody to connect them to like Red Cross or something like that, that could help them out in the short run uh, until oh. they could get back on their feet. So, um, you know, combining those things have served me well. So now when I have to deliver discipline, or, you know, tell somebody they didn't get the promotion okay. or even, you know, terminate somebody, which doesn't happen often, but does okay. happen. Um, you know, I'm able to approach that in a way that, uh, I guess the biggest thing is that you can deliver bad news, but everybody should leave the room with their dignity intact. No, I, I totally agree. That's the right way to do it. And I'm making a couple of notes as we're going through this and you brought up three really big words of like. Like failure and setbacks, resilience and empathy. Now, I think a lot of people experience failure a lot and they just like look at it as kind of like that's the end where it's almost like the way I view it is you kind of fail. It's like a learning opportunity. You just learned something that you hadn't before. So you're almost one step ahead. What advice do you have for someone who feels like they took a hit like you did almost getting demoted, like took one or two steps backward, but then you slingshotted five steps forward. Like what do you have for people who are kind of whether it's in their like public safety career, whether it's in their personal life, what kind of advice do you have for someone who's experiencing like 
failures or setbacks and kind of how to overcome those and remain resilient. Well, you know what? A, a friend of mine once told me, or not once, actually, this is pretty recently, recently said that uh, uh, setbacks are the setup for great comebacks. Or wow. something like that. I probably messed it up. But you might say that again. You might say that again. I, I think that's some good wisdom right there. I think we can all hear yeah. that. Uh great setbacks are the stage for great comebacks. Is what he said. And uh and I, I believe that. You know, I believe if you, you know, just stay with it and, and keep knocking on the door. Uh, I didn't become the chief the first time I asked to become the chief, you know. I, mm-hmm. I you know, failed at that you know, two, three times before I actually became the chief of the Minneapolis Fire Department. Um, you know, for every, I would say for every promotion I got that wasn't involved in a civil service test, uh, I probably was denied at least two times for, you know, each time I got it. So uh, mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, sticking with it, working on yourself uh, and be yourself, I think it's the biggest thing. Uh, be I, yourself. I love it. It's funny, people talk about like, like your personal and your professional life when it's all your life. Like you're one person. You don't, there's not like two halves. Like I feel like that's what people come in almost like experience a little bit of more difficult time in life when they feel like they can't bring their full full person to self. I mean, what kind of um what what's the culture kind of look like at Minneapolis Fire? I know like a lot of the apartments I've seen, it's almost like this sports locker room mentality in a way, but like what kind of culture do you try and foster to be able to keep your men and women healthy? Um, mentally, physically, because I know I, it can be a very taxing job, both mentally, physically, even emotionally as well. Absolutely. You know, the one thing that I, I really liked early in my career that you don't really get as much as the chief, but you get a little bit is the the family camaraderie, the family atmosphere. Mm-hmm. We work 24-hour shifts. We're with each other about as much as we're with our actual families. Mm-hmm. And so you, you develop bonds, especially when you're going into the type of incidents and the type of things uh, that we're doing, you know, our lives literally depend upon each mm-hmm. other. And so we, we, we really develop strong bonds. Uh, the other thing is, is that, uh, you can't get too caught up in your job, right? Uh, firefighter mm-hmm. is what you do. The fire chief is what I do. It's not who I am. It's not mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. who I am. So, uh, you know, being true to yourself, uh, maintaining yourself, uh, just taking, having pride in your work, um, you see. One of the things I try to do is I try to be accessible uh, and transparent. I try to be, you know, speak honestly with everybody. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing is I thank members for their work early and often. You know, the, mm-hmm. the guys and ladies out there are doing a great job, uh, just making sure that they know that they're appreciated. And mm-hmm. then as the chief, you kind of have to get out the way. You know, mm-hmm. like you'd like to sit there and just hang out with those guys and, and do all of that stuff. But uh, honestly, uh, having the chief around makes some people, you know, a little bit nervous. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to get out the way and give them the opportunity to kind of be themselves. You know, I try to think about, you know, when I was in the stations as a firefighter, a driver, a captain, uh, you know, you, you didn't want to always have, want to have the chief around. You know, you want to mm-hmm. be able to kind of uh, talk, you know, do the things that you that you like to do uh, mm-hmm. without anybody seeming like they're looking over your shoulder. So, a lot of it is getting out the way. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that's kind of what makes like a good leader there. And um, I always like to I forget where I read it from, but it's almost like everyone has this invisible sign hanging on their neck that like says like I want to feel important. So like, how's a leader yes. like you like help 
make sure, like I think you said there, like appreciating people's work, what to support them because they're not working for you. I think it's like the leader's working for them. Like, how can I give you the tools? How can I best support you to do your job? And I think that what ultimately is what makes a great leader, not a title to define a leader, but the actual actions about how that goes. And like, do you feel like there's any specific formula like that you have to becoming a leader? Did it kind of just happen? Like, how do you kind of feel like if someone were to ask, like, what are the qualities that make up a leader? What would be like a couple words that would describe a leader in, in your mind? So it doesn't just happen. I can tell you mm-hmm. that. And and I do believe that leaders are made, not born. But mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes uh, your journey there isn't always um, just you planning. Like if I do this, mm-hmm. do that, do that, then I will be a great leader. It's often mm-hmm. just taking your experiences and uh, your learnings and all of that stuff and putting it together. But I do think you need to serve your people. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about it, the fire department is here to serve the public, right? Mm-hmm. But the fire chief, I'm not serving the public. It's 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 the crews, you know. It's those mm-hmm. guys on the rigs that are going out there every day and putting out the fires and, and treating the injured and and going to the car accidents and things like that. My mm-hmm. job is to provide them with the things that they need to be able to do their jobs, which is to serve the public. So, you know, I'm serving them. They're serving the public, uh, and that can range from anything from equipment needs and, and, you know, things like that to training needs, um, to, to, uh, mental health needs to uh, physical health needs and, uh, certainly budgetary needs. We want to make sure that they're, you know, compensated well and things like that. But, uh, and then just providing that, uh, infrastructure, I guess, uh, Mm -hmm. for them to be free to do their jobs and, and not have to think about all of the other stuff. No, I love that you're kind of the person who's kind of helping able to overcome some of the obstacles and, and challenges. And, and Chief Tyner, I talked with quite a few chiefs each day, like both the police and fire. And it seems like between like both of like just the public safety world, there's like three big things that kind of seem to be like a little more challenging for departments, kind of like going along the lines of like staffing, so like recruitment retention, um, mm-hmm. overtime and injuries. Um, what kind of have you seen firsthand at your department and how do you kind of overcome some of those challenges? I think you hit it on the head. Retention hasn't been that big of an issue mm-hmm. uh, as far as not forced retention, in other words, from an injury or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, we are starting to lose uh, some of our younger members to some of these other departments that are you know, now becoming full-time and actually are paying more than mm-hmm. the Minneapolis Fire Department, but not many. But uh, staffing is always an issue. Uh, you know, we always have people who are at the age of where they can retire. I'm at the age where I can retire. That's mm-hmm. why another thing, uh, going back to that last question, is leadership development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to do this forever. I got yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. to get those next people ready. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I want to leave, leave the department in good hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but staffing is a big thing. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that we've done to address that is we've, first of all, we looked at our hiring practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked to remove barriers uh, to employment that may have uh, precluded people from uh, coming on to this profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at our scoring systems and our hiring systems to make sure that, you know, they reflected what we're looking for in a fire cadet or a firefighter. Uh, and then after that, we uh, changed our recruitment practices. So we really? used to recruit, you know, in the months leading up to 
an application period and then and, and we hit all schools hard. Now we recruit all the time. We recruit all year round. Ah. So our uh, community risk reduction team, I've also kind of tasked them with uh, recruiting, you know, uh -huh. and looking for recruiting opportunities and we recruit all year round so that uh, when that hiring period comes around every two years, we have a lot of people that are aware of what this is and what they're doing. And as for younger people, try to maybe uh, uh, let them get a taste of it uh -huh. earlier so that they know what it is and what it isn't, and then they can make their own decisions. Uh, just try to, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Expose them to it. Okay, okay. Yeah, so for example, like the, fire, like the younger generation, I feel like recruitment's changed a little bit, obviously since, since you joined the fire service. Like what are ways to like reach out to the younger generation? Are you kind of doing stuff like social media or what are ways you're grabbing their attention to kind of attract them into that public safety field? Social media is huge. We've been a little bit, uh, <clears throat> uh, the city of Minneapolis is not all the way on board with social media. Yes. <laughs> a lot of the social media is, uh, is controlled by the communications department. The only thing we have is our Twitter X, uh, account now, but we use, we've used that a lot. But some of the big things we've done is we've started a fire explorers program okay. in partnership with the Boy Scouts of America, in which we uh, expose people from the ages of 14 to 21 to firefighting. We actually uh, bring them here a couple of times a month and, you know, give them courses on firefighting and get them out. And, and uh, every year at the state fair, they have a big explorers competition where they get to go out there and show off their skills and oh, spend awesome. a day at the fair. Uh, we have a, uh, a, an EMS Pathways Academy for adults. So we target adults, usually 18 to 35, uh, mm -hmm. especially in underutilized populations. And uh, that program is a paid internship, which they spend 12 weeks uh, learning to become, or get their emergency medical technician certification, after which we try to connect them with jobs in the EMS field, such as firefighter, emergency medical technician, paramedic, wow. and or uh, EMT dispatcher. So that's been a wildly successful program. And so we're just trying to find different ways to get people through the door instead of the just the uh, old civil service list way. Mm -hmm. Now, that's awesome. That definitely sounds like some great ways to get more people in the door. And it sounds like it's doing really well to help, like, even if they're not necessarily joining your department, which you hope they do, you can be able to help some other departments because... I know it's like, yes, you want your de department to succeed, but the whole fire departments around the entire country as well, as well as the districts and volunteer departments as well. So that sounds like you're awesome there. It is. We're doing really well with it. I will say that uh, as far as the civil service list goes, um, you know, when I, when I took the civil service list or when I applied for the civil service list, we used to get about 2,000 to 2,500 applications every oh, wow. two years. It seems like over the last six or seven hiring cycles that's going down to each cycle. Our last cycle, we got about 700 and I don't know, I'll say 750 applications, which is a lot less, but still a lot more than we can mm -hmm. ever hire in two years. You know, our fire department is 434 members. So, mm -hmm. uh, we hired probably as much in the last two years and recovering from COVID as we ever have in a, mm -hmm. a two year cycle. We did five class. We hired about a hundred people. But normally oh, wow. we might only hire, you know, 20 to 30 people a year. So uh, 700 and something is still quite a, quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, for our needs. So we're doing okay there. Mm -hmm. We're just not doing as well as we did in the past. But we are still mm -hmm. getting good candidates. 
No, that's awesome. And I, I'm just curious, like, what do you think is, why do you think there's been almost more than like a 50% drop in applicants over time? I'm not sure if I can put my finger on it. Um, I think part of it might be generational. I just think uh -huh. that uh, this job isn't viewed the way it was by maybe past generations. Um, uh -huh. But I think I probably need to ask <laughs> the upcoming generations <laughs> yeah. about that to really know the answer. Uh, but there's a lot more opportunities out there, you know, than there uh -huh. was before, too. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of opportunities that maybe we didn't even have, even in 95, that uh -huh. exists now. And so people have, you know, choices. People have a lot of different ways they can go. No, they, they definitely do. And I, mean, I played college soccer and we were outside and like all the time, too, for like cold temperatures. So I don't know, maybe there's people like in Minneapolis, like I don't want to be outside in the winter and stuff fighting fires. I have no idea. But that kind of brings me to an interesting point here. Like, how is firefighting different when you go from, like, sub-zero temperatures? Because you guys, on, on the map, I always see the radar. It's blue and purple, dark and cold. Yeah. <laughs> like, how does firefighting differ when it's, like, sub-zero or, like, really cold temperatures versus, like, when you're at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or, like, a 60-degree day? Yeah, it's night and day. Uh, you definitely have to approach things a little bit differently. But uh, getting back to your last question, that actually dropping applicants is a nationwide phenomenon. It's not mm -hmm. just here in Minneapolis. So I don't think the weather plays into it. But I, I tell you, this weather, firefighting in this type of weather is, is different. You know, you got to think about things. First of all, the water's freezing as soon as it hits. So that creates, you know, the ground, is mm -hmm. that creates a hazard uh, mm -hmm. with slip trips and falls. Uh, the water, you have to keep the water running. Once mm -hmm. you charge the holes, you got to at least leave the nozzle cracked to keep the water running or the water will freeze in the holes. And once that happens, wow. you know, it's done deal. You're not going to get that thought out for hours. Um, and then just making sure that you're, you know, properly, uh, clothed and, and, uh, and that you're not, you know, going to freeze. A lot of times you get covered, caked in ice. Mm -hmm. We will. Uh, we have a partnership with Metro Transit bus mm -hmm. system where they will bring buses out to kind of sh serve as warming shelters uh, for both residents and for us. Mm -hmm. But honestly, once you get that ice caked on your turnout gear, mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to get on that bus because if you melt that ice, you're gonna be wet and you're never gonna be warm again. Oh, like you're better true. off. You're better off staying out there just being the ice man and. <laughs> and, uh, you know, working, working through that until the fire is out. So oh, man. at least, yeah. at least you're relatively dry. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. That's what melts is the problem there. That's, that's a good point. I didn't even thought about you just like a turn into a giant popsicle. You just start yeah, falling yeah. and then you're freezing after that. Wow. Right. People always notice the rigs running is cause we have to keep the pumps churning. Otherwise the water freezing the pumps. So there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration when you're fighting fires in this, this type of weather. That's very interesting. Yeah, thanks for kind of going into that. And then, like, but actually, switching... as I think about it, mm -hmm. that's probably when people would most want to run in instead of coming out. So maybe we should use that <laughs> as a recruiting. You can, recruiting especially in the winter. There you go. Flipping <laughs> yeah. the game. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I, I just made me think here, like when I was kind of just thinking for a second, kind of switching gears a little bit. You were obviously at the uh, Minneapolis Fire Department when all kind of the George Floyd stuff was kind of going on around like 2020. Yes. Like, how how was that for you personally, the department, the city? What was kind of going on there during that time that you saw firsthand? Oh, it was it was a lot going on. It was uh, 
it was kind of like pandemonium all over the city. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a plan in place. So we had uh, plans for, for riots or for civil unrest, but they hadn't been used since uh, the civil unrest of the 60s, right? We hadn't mm -hmm. had any civil yeah. unrest since uh, the late 60s in, in the city of Minneapolis. And so uh, a lot of our younger uh, firefighters uh, weren't really aware of how that strategy worked. And so I think that made for a lot of, of uh, angst and hurt feelings. Uh, what we use when we're uh, in a civil unrest is a uh, is what we call a, a uh, task force response. Uh -huh. And the task force response is comprised of two engines, uh, one fire truck, uh, one chief, and a security component, which is usually either uh, police through the MPD or possibly National Guard. Mm -hmm. The first thing we ran into is the police were overwhelmed, and so they weren't able to provide us with that security component. Mm -hmm. So when we tried to respond without them, uh, we were initially met with, uh, you know, rocks and bottles being thrown at, at the firefighters and the rigs. Uh, people were pulling couches in to try to trap us in and things like that. And oh, so wow. it became clear pretty early that we weren't going to be able to respond without mm -hmm. that security component. Wow. Uh, and because of that, we actually had to wait until we could get the National Guard, which wasn't until uh, the next day, the next mm -hmm. evening, actually. Uh, once we had them attached to us, things worked out pretty well, but it was it was crazy. Like, there were whole blocks on fire. Uh, you know, people were just setting one building after another. The miracle through it all is that uh, nobody got hurt on the fire department. Wow. And none of the firefighters got seriously injured. Uh, our biggest injury was a guy that had uh, 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 Lyme disease, which I'm oh. pretty sure he got from a deer tick, you know. <laughs> that had nothing to do with this. <laughs> um, uh, and as for uh, civilians, you know, a lot of, they were setting businesses on fire. They weren't setting uh, houses and apartment buildings on fire. Mm -hmm. So uh, luckily we didn't have any fire fatalities except for one, a person who ran back into a business uh, after he was already on fire and, and mm -hmm. uh, didn't come out. But uh, the fact that we avoided, uh, you know, all that loss of life except for that one, I think is, is a, uh, almost a miracle in itself. But I think the biggest uh, challenge was, was the mental challenge of mm -hmm. having to, uh, especially when we didn't have a security component, sit there, have the city burning, not mm -hmm. be able to, to help, you know, we're wired to get in and help. We're wired to get in and do something. We're wired to get in and put yeah. the fire out. And I think uh, not being able to do that really had a, a big effect on people. Yeah. It was almost like, um, almost like survivor's guilt in a way. Like for example, like if a firefighter's injured and like their, their truck or team goes out and one of them doesn't come back, is, is that like a thing that like firefighters experience? Like if I, if I wasn't injured, I wish I could get back. I, I could have been there. I could have done something. Is that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I experienced that myself. Uh, even now, uh, when the 35W bridge collapsed, uh, oh, at that time I was a captain on fire engine seven, which is just on the uh the west side mm -hmm. of the uh bridge you know it would be one of the first in engines i was on vacation in california so i wasn't there mm -hmm. and uh you know nobody 
we didn't have anybody died, but just not being there and being able to be a part of that and help uh, has, has stuck with me for a long time. You know, uh, feeling like you weren't there when, when you were needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that can definitely so be I'm a sure they, Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of people kind of felt the same thing, uh, especially over that first day and a half. And, uh, and then for me, myself, I was the assistant chief at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, for a lot of people, uh, you know, being a black man and uh, having that conflict about, uh, you know, what the riots were over and everything uh-huh. and it being about police brutality and the death of George Floyd and all of that stuff. But also, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to, you know, help people and, and not let anybody get hurt. You know, it, it was it was conflicting yeah. feelings. But uh, I do remember those being some long, long days that we were pretty much as you know the assistant chiefs and the chiefs we were out there mm-hmm. uh pretty much we worked like 22 hours take a nap and then go back at it you know so it was it was a lot we were all doing two three jobs at a time um wow we got nicked on a couple of things in the after action report mm-hmm. that we had to uh kind of clean up and fix but mm-hmm. I think we're in a good position now if it were ever to happen again. But the biggest thing was communicating and making sure that everybody was on the same page. Mm-hmm. Everybody understood uh, if they were going, if they weren't going, why they weren't going. Mm-hmm. And just really understanding how that strategy worked. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a lot there. And I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like, how do you personally handle this, like, conflict on the inside or like when the external environment is happening obviously we can't control it and it's sometimes causes a lot of frustration confusion how do you kind of be able to channel that so you can still function throughout the day and keep your your mental sharp so you can still perform a job and be there for your team how do you how do you kind of cope with that you know the truth is you don't in the moment uh mm-hmm. you kind of get good at kind of burying things or putting them in a box uh mm-hmm. because you know you have to have your mind clear and focused on what you're doing in the moment. Uh-huh. And then, uh, you know, when you get done with that, you really can't deal with it because, you know, you got to be ready for the next person that might need you just as much as the last. Uh-huh. And so you kind of just kind of tuck it away and put it in a box. The trick though, is that you really don't control when the box gets opened again. So, yeah. uh, you know, and this goes with when you have a bad run or, or with the riots or anything else, uh, the box has kind of got to open when it wants to open. But I think the best the best way that I was able to deal with it was just kind of, uh, you know, talking about it with people. Uh, I've done a couple of interviews on it uh, uh, after the fact, uh, but mainly having people close to you that you can mm-hmm. talk to about it. And sometimes it might even be people that aren't even on the fire department, but just are a good listening ear for you. Uh, you know, you try not to bring that stuff home and, and kind of saddle yeah. your family with it. Mm-hmm. So having that... Uh, kind of person that you can that you can that you can talk to and kind of uh work through some things with well that that definitely makes sense and yeah sometimes you just don't know when the for lack of a term the jack in the box is going to pop open like the sitting there like oh when's it going to happen especially if it keeps like building up over time and um i think you're right like everyone needs to kind of be able to try and find an outlet whether it's me talking with a friend whether kind of channeling to physical activity just trying to find something where it just doesn't feel like pent up inside that's what i'm kind of getting from you yeah the funny thing about those boxes is it can be just the oddest thing that mm-hmm. triggers the box coming open so uh, something that 
may not have anything to do with anything, but all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, the box opens and all of these, uh, you know, emotions and feelings and thoughts, you know, come out and, and now, now you got to deal with them. And it's usually not at the most opportune time either. So mm -hmm. that's why it's better to kind of talk about it and, and work it off ahead mm -hmm. of time as opposed to just trying to keep it inside for too long. All right. It never happens at a time where you're just like chilling at home, like by yourself. It always happens at the worst time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a lot. Um, and I, I did have this other question here. It's like, what kind of important life lessons do you feel like a career in firefighting and public safety provides? You know, I, I think it uh, really gets you in touch with humanity if you do it right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. some people uh, tend to close themselves off from humanity, and I think that's where yeah. it becomes a problem. But mm -hmm. it also teaches you that you can do anything. Like, you can do just about anything. Uh, when you put your mind to it, you know, we have standard operating procedures and uh, ways that we do things, but no two fires are ever the same. No two incidents are ever the same. And oftentimes you kind of have to think your way out of things or think your way through things uh, mm -hmm. and come up with different ways of doing things. And you find out that you really do have the ability to do that, given the tools in the toolbox. Uh, you know, you find out that, that life is a blessing, like a lot of mm -hmm. people you know, are out here struggling. Uh, a lot of people, you know, have problems and, and sometimes we do too, you know, we're human okay. too, but okay. I, I think it just, it just really, uh, is a satisfying feeling that, that, you know, you can be there to help people and that, uh, and that, uh, conversely people are here to help you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's really powerful chief. And like kind of on those regards, like what do you feel like has been the most rewarding aspect for you as being a fire chief of, I think like the largest department in Minnesota, just what kind of fills your cup each day? You know, I think, uh, the biggest thing for me is, uh, the pride in, in seeing a department operate, uh, the pride in, uh, you know, seeing how people receive you. I'm generally well received, uh, when I go places, um, yeah being able to, to, uh, do things to, to help the guys, you know, we've, uh, embarked on a couple of contracts here recently that I think are going to really make the guys, uh, lives a lot better. Um, yes. and, uh, and again, just helping people, you know, I've, I've felt okay. that at every point in my career for, for different reasons, That's but, right. uh, you know, I really do feel like the department has, has made some strides here, uh, over the last, uh, five, six years, I'm proud of the way that we were able to come out of COVID, which was an unprecedented, you know, thing for yeah. uh, this department and for many to have to deal with, uh, and the science was always changing and we just had to kind of, I think our way through it. And while, you know, many people were able to just kind of sit at home and work in their home office like mine here, including me when I was the assistant chief, mm -hmm. you know, the guys on the street, they had to go, you know, mm -hmm. they had to go to work every day. And then they had to come to your house every day, you know, when you were sick and, and then worry mm -hmm. about, you know, whether they were going to contract COVID and bring it home to their families. But you know what? They stayed professional through that. They, they, uh, you know, treated people with, with, uh, you know, kindness and empathy through that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just proud of, of the department and the way that things go. Uh, I tell guys all the time, man, when you put on this badge, you know, mm -hmm. it comes with, uh, like over a century's worth of trust that people have built up 
you know, before yeah. you. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I always ask them to just, you know, push that forward, man. You know, keep that trust uh, moving forward. You know, people are calling you in their homes in their most vulnerable moments in the worst days of their lives and you're there to try to make it better. So, and they do that every day. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the thing I'm most proud of. That That's very impactful, Chief. And yeah, when you think about it, it's almost like the adrenaline rush you feel of, I'm going to go save and help these people that makes you feel good. It's the worst day of these people's lives because all the memories, all of the stuff from their ancestors, all of the stuff that makes a home a home is <clears throat> sometimes just gone. And absolutely, it's interesting when you think about it from the opposite point of view, the kind of empathy like you discussed earlier, and how it's really important to be able to put yourself in that person's shoes. And yeah, that that's very deep. Yeah, it's not all roses, you know. Some days are yeah. better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the guys are gonna complain about stuff in between those rows, but mm-hmm. when the bell rings, they're gonna be right there. Yeah, that's great to hear, Chief. And when you're talking about kind of the men and women, like. What kind of advice would you have for someone who's looking to kind of embark on a career in being a firefighter? You know, you really got to have a desire to serve. Um, mm-hmm. I always tell the guys I can, this is why they never send me into the negotiation room by myself either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could probably never pay you enough to do the things that we're going to ask you to do. Mm-hmm. So you really have to have a desire uh, to serve. You know, we're asking you to risk your lives at times. Uh, to, uh, you know, help people. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I probably can't pay you enough to to, to do that, but uh, you really have to have, you really have to have a desire to serve. It helps to be athletic, you know, it helps mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, be intelligent, all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. It helps if you have a sports background or a military background because this is a team-oriented activity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, it's a, a paramilitary organization, but when it all boils down, it's having a desire to serve. Desire to serve. Yeah. Man, that's good right there. Like you said, like there's money can't money can't buy everything. And I guess the fulfillment that people get from wanting to help others can really be achieved in this like service. You really see it firsthand the impacts you're making. You're literally saving people's lives each day. I always said that's my that was my favorite part of not being the chief when I was a captain mm-hmm. or when I was a firefighter is that you get to see the fruits of your labor in real time. Mm. You know, when you help somebody, uh, when you treat an injury, uh, when you, you know, put out a fire or get somebody out of a burning home, you know, you get to see, uh, the effects of that in real time. You know, now I do something, it might be a year before I know if it worked mm. right, you know, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How is that transition for you kind of going from like, being out there day to day in the trucks on the scene to all of a sudden being behind a desk and more like the nine to five role. Like how does, how does, how was that transition for you? I'm sure that's not an easy one to make. It's not, it was tough at first. First of all, mm-hmm. as firefighters, you know, we work a 24 hour shift. We work a day on, we got mm-hmm. 24 hours off. We work another 24, then we get three days off. So now you're coming in five days a week, like everybody else. And your first question you ask yourself is how do people do this? Right? Yeah. How do you get up and come in every single morning? But then once you get over there, uh, I think it's really, uh, changing your mindset as far as your decision-making processes. At least that was the, the biggest challenge for me when you're out on the street, when you're a captain, when you're a battalion chief, 
uh, you're taught to take a very limited amount of information and make a very quick strategic decision and then go into action. And, you know, because lives depending on it. Whereas here, you really do have the time and space to slow down, gather more information and data and make a better informed decision. But you've been programmed to make those quick decisions for so many years that it actually took effort for me to be able to kind of really uh, slow down and uh, give a more measured approach as opposed to just a quick decision, let's go. You're right, you're right. That is just another thing to be able to say there. Like when you're changing from one phase of your career in life to the other, there's a lot of things to think about there. And is there any advice you have for someone who's possibly like a captain who's better to go to the next level now? Or do you be like, hey, like maybe like try this or keep this in mind as you're kind of progressing to this next phase of your career? You know, I, I actually hired somebody to teach that. No, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I would just say, yeah. I would just say, first of all, enjoy every moment of where you're at, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but prepare yourself for the next, for the next uh, step. Uh, but just, you know, I, I don't know, know yourself, I guess mm-hmm. is the best thing. And uh, understand that, um, you know, these aren't emergencies that we're, for the most part, not like true emergencies like you're dealing with now. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. These aren't emergencies that we're dealing with up here. You know, we mm-hmm. have time to really slow down mm-hmm. and uh, make the best decision for everybody. And uh, if half the people are happy and half the people are not, you probably landed at about the right spot. There you go. You can't make everybody happy, right? Yeah, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chief. Well, I know I've kept you for a while. I have two questions that I'm going to end with. These are going to be the staple of the Chief Exchange. So... In one sentence that is less than nine words, what message do you want the listeners to take away from our exchange today? Ooh, um, be resilient, be true to yourself. And I didn't say this earlier and that makes me more than nine words, but uh, <laughs> accentuate the positive. And I'll explain that by saying, uh, a lot of times when people are becoming leaders, uh, they do these 360 evaluations and other tools yes, and they focus on the weaknesses yes, and, they, and it's good to, you know, uh, improve upon your weaknesses. Yes, but I think true leadership comes when you accentuate your positives and, and really develop those positives and straight stay true to yourself. I think that's very powerful chief. And I really appreciate you sharing that message. And um, last question here, a little bit of a challenge. Who is another fire or police chief that you challenge to be on the chief exchange that you think the audience would kind of benefit from hearing from? Uh, you know what? I got a couple. Uh, I would One would be uh, uh, my counterpart in St. Paul, Chief Butch Inks. All right. Uh, and another would be a good friend of mine. He's the uh, fire chief of the Austin Fire Department, uh, Chief Joel Baker. Joel Baker down like in Texas? Yep, Austin, Texas. All right, all right. We'll be sure to let him know that you kind of called him out here and uh, get his take on like literally opposite ends. We're probably like really warm down there right now, so um, <laughs> yeah, right. We'll, get, we'll get the polar extremes. <laughs> it's cold yeah, to yeah, him, you know. It's probably yeah, like it will be thirty degrees. It's cold to him, but <laughs> awesome, Chief Tyner. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I know everyone listening does as well. And um, please stay safe, stay warm, and um, that's all for today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Hey, Chief Nation, if you're finding value from this podcast, then go ahead and share it with another person who you think would benefit from listening. The only way this podcast grows is by word of mouth, so by sharing, you'll be helping someone else change their life.